Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 42 and 43 if you're not already there. Before we look further into this text this morning, I'd like for you to go on an imaginative adventure with me, okay? Can we all do this together? Can we go on a mental journey? Imagine this scenario is happening. You come in this morning, as you did, and you are having a fantastic morning. Things are just, it's just a good day. You walk in the doors, and someone greets you, and they, they have a specific word of encouragement for that specific trial or that specific hardship that you know you're right in the middle of. And they not only tell you that they've been praying for you this week, but they tell you two or three things that they've seen in your life that, that is just evidences or marks of the goodness of God operating in the midst of that trial. So you look at your friend and you just think, man, I love this guy. I love, thank you. I am so encouraged already, and I've been in this building three minutes. This is fantastic. So you make your way down to Bible class, and you go into your class, and lights are just turning on as you look at this passage of Scripture, or you look at some particular area of theology, and, and you're, you're connecting the dots, and there's just this sense of, wow, this is fantastic. I'm just so equipped and built up and encouraged. And so you make your way from Bible class, and you come down through the lobby here, and once again, a couple more conversations take place, and people are just, just building you up. And you are just thinking, this is a fantastic day. You come in here, and would you know it, but all six songs that are sung are your all-time favorites. They are your all-time favorites. You love them, and you think, am I getting set up for something? This is fantastic. I love these songs. And so you lift your voices with the people of God, and you call out in, in your need for God, and you confess truth about Him, and you are just already so encouraged. The pastoral prayer could almost be as if you were praying it yourself. It's almost exactly what you're going through, and then the preaching of God's Word just washes over you with the conviction and the encouragement that only God can give, right? So imagine just the absolute best Sunday you can ever imagine. And you know that you need this because you've got a really tough week coming up. In fact, you're about to head all the way across the world on a long business trip, and you know that it's going to be challenging. So you're really thankful to God for such a spectacular Sunday. In fact, your, your work is leading you to Seoul, South Korea. It's where you're going to conduct your business. And upon arrival, you learn that the relations, the international relations between North and South Korea have eroded very, very quickly such that at four in the morning, your hotel is evacuated and you learn that the unthinkable has just happened. Although half the size of South Korea, North Korea has just conducted this massive invasion of South Korea. And you're trapped. You can't get out. In fact, the very fact that you're an American makes you all the more a, a gloated possession of your captors. In a matter of hours, your life has drastically changed. All right, now are you tracking with me? Don't just think about that happening. Think about it as you. It's you, okay? It's you. You're an international business person all of a sudden, but you are an exile. And in fact, the, the 
The government starts to peruse some of your social media and they quickly learn that you're a Christian. And so your fate is that of your 50 to 70,000 other North Korean brothers and sisters in Christ. And you are quickly hauled off to a labor camp where persecution is just inevitable and potentially even death. I mean, a, a sobering scenario. Unbelievable, right? I mean, this is the 21st century. Could that even happen? That's not the point. The point is that you went from the joyous worshiping with the people of God, and in a moment, all of that has changed. You can't believe what has happened. Memories of your homeland, your family, worshiping with your church family, the fellowship of your Christian friends, loving accountability and relationships that spur you on to love and to good deeds, gone in a moment. All you hear is the scorn and the oppression of your captors. I recognize that this story doesn't quite capture the context that we find ourselves in. Uh, the, the psalmist find him, finds himself in Psalm 42 and 43. I recognize that. The United States is not Israel, and we don't even know exactly where the psalmist is when he writes this, but a good chance that he may be in Assyria or Babylon in captivity. We do know this. He's far from home. He's nowhere near the comforts of what he once knew. So if we don't feel the sense of just the heart-wrenching emotion that is just pouring out of this psalm, we don't have a prayer of understanding it. How do you tell, how do you retell a passionate story dispassionately? You can't, right? You can't, or you do it in injustice. You have to retell a passionate story with the passion that it deserves, so if we have any hope of understanding this text this morning, you have to actually feel it. You have to get inside this text and feel it with the psalmist. He is in anguish. He is going through the trial of his life. He's ostracized from his homeland, and he only hears the oppression of his enemies. Psalm 42 and 43 as was just read a few moments ago, are tightly connected, such that it's really almost inconceivable to imagine that they were not one psalm That's at one point. So whether the liturgical uh, calendar and singing of Israel caused them to see a need to separate it, or perhaps uh, as almost an addendum at the end, there was another verse written. Uh, what we find here, though, is that Psalm 42 contains two stanzas. Two verses, right? This morning we sung a number of songs, right? And we, we would sing one verse at a time, and then we'd go into the second verse, and we'd go into the third verse. Well, think of that in these terms. What you have in 42 is two stanzas, two verses, and then 43 would be the last, the third and final verse. I will occasionally reference both of these together this morning, though I am comfortable leaving out our study of 43. And the reason is that the psalm restates itself. And I don't feel that uh, enough information has changed that we have to take it all together. We do this all the time. We'll leave out verses from time to time, but we'll still get the general sense of the songs that we're singing even in corporate worship together. 
We see this in our hymnal as well. We might only have six verses mentioned there, but the author originally had 12, and some editor of a hymnal came along and chopped off six of them or made a decision. So I feel comfortable looking at 42 as a standalone message that we can look at this morning. Though, no ahead of time, this is one psalm. Just like there are many different kinds of poetry in our day that we recognize, different kinds of poetry, it's important to examine what kind of psalm we're looking at here. Psalm 42 is an individual lament to God. Sometimes a psalmist will lament on behalf of all the community of Israel. That would be a communal lament, but this is not that. This is an individual simply pouring out his soul before God. These are psalms, these individual laments are often, oftentimes called psalms of disorientation, right? Imagine a person with vertigo. Some of you may have had that from time to time. They, they are completely disoriented. They don't know how to regain their equilibrium, and it's, it's awful from what I understand. There's this disorientation to the way life should go. And so what you find with these psalms of lament is that life, as the psalmist looks at it, is disoriented. The unrighteous are triumphing. What? And the righteous, God's chosen people, are in chaos or are in exile or are suffering in the way that the unrighteous ought to be, right? There is a disorientation to the way life should be. These are psalms that rise from the hearts of God's children as they deal with seasons of hurt, alienation, suffering, and death. And oftentimes they are born out of times of wrestling with God when the wicked seem to prosper and yet the righteous still suffer. So you might notice the title that is above the, the number 42 in your Bibles there, the script right above it. It says, to the choir master, a maskal of the sons of Korah. So what is a maskal? Well, a maskal is typically understood to be a psalm of instruction, a word of instruction. And the sons of Korah were Levites who performed and produced music both during the time of the tabernacle as well as the time of the temple. So what we have here is an individual lament that is intended to instruct God's people. An individual lament that is supposed to teach us something important. So what we have here is someone who is writing emotionally charged language. Someone that is emotionally distraught, and we're supposed to listen to that person. In our day and age, don't we see some people that are a little emotionally unstable, emotionally volatile, and we think, oh, how can we just stop this? This is, eh, this is scary. Let's, let's just get them to stop crying, and then we'll at least all be calm. But we're actually supposed to feel with the psalmist and learn something from his cries. There is an appropriate way to emote to God. He has given these as an emotion and they are to be directed to him. And we're supposed to listen and learn. So do you know any people who are suffering right now? They may be closer to you than you realize. They may be your own self. Are you suffering right now? A lot of times we just want to tell them to stop crying, but suffering is one of the greatest teachers of all, isn't it? Not just for the ones suffering, but for all who observe. It's as if this psalm is saying, hey, watch, hey, watch, 
Don't miss this. See what this person's going through? It's really, really important. Watch, learn. Don't ever forget. This is important. God wants you and I to learn something from Christians who suffer. As C.S. Lewis so famously wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, he writes this about the unique nature of pain. He says this, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So you might consider yourself to be a fairly mature believer here this morning. You may think of yourself as fairly you know, you've got things together, you understand your Bible, and you've helped a lot of people, and you've, you've got life together. But very often, even mature believers can be right here in this deaf world category, and we can be completely deaf to God's plan in the midst of our suffering. So wherever you are this morning, God is calling to you through your pain and through the pain of this psalmist. So nearly a third of all the psalms in the Psalter are laments. Is that encouraging or what? Nearly a third of all the psalms are laments, far more than even psalms of praise and thanksgiving. So we must first recognize their importance, but we might want to secondly ask the question, so how does a lament, how does lamenting differ from just whining about my problems? How are those different? I had a professor who once put it this way. He said the difference between whining and lamenting is that lamenting involves a posture of facing God in your problems and in your troubles. Whining is facing away from Him. So most laments here in the Scriptures, in the Psalter, will begin with an invocation of God, calling out to Him, they, they call out to God, and then they begin to discuss the particulars of the distress that they find themselves in. They start to say, God, do you see all this? Do you see where I am? Do you see what your people of the nation of Israel, where they are? Do you see these problems? It begins with this inv invocation. And then typically, it's the case, not completely always, but almost always, you see this trajectory start to form where there begins to be a, a movement toward God, a movement toward statements of confidence in God's character, statements of confidence about who He is and His promises to His people. This is that Godward focus of a lament. So let's see here in verse 1 and 2, let's read together, and let's first notice how the psalmist thirsts for the presence of God. We read, as a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So if we would discern anything of value from these two Psalms, 42 and 43, we must first answer the question, toward what goal is the psalmist driving? Where is he going? What is his major question that he's seeking after more than anything? And it's fairly clear, isn't it? When? When can I get near the temple? When? When can I come near God's presence? The temple is the object of his passion. He's got to get there. 
He's not there and he wants to be there more than anything. Why? Why would the temple be so significant? Well, we know that the temple was the place where God chose to localize his glory and to meet with his people for blessing with his covenant children. There's a way in which he conveyed his character and his presence in a way that was not present in the land of the Philistines, right? Or anywhere else. So the psalmist said, I know where you can be found, God, and I'm not there. I want to be near you more than anything else. When can I come and appear before God? Do you feel his angst? He's far from home. It's not just that he misses the general comforts of home. He wants to be near God. So we see his singular passion. This goal permeates both of these psalms. This aching within him is his thirst to be in God's presence. Literally, from the the Hebrew, to, to appear before the face of God. He wants the temple. The image here is one of a deer panting for water. As one man notes regarding this opening analogy, this is no camel. This is no desert-dwelling, self-sufficient creature. The psalmist knows that his soul cannot live without the presence of God. Four times in these first two verses, God's name is invoked, indicating the God-centeredness of this plea. Furthermore, it is with the psalmist's whole being that he thirsts for God. This is the idea of this, my soul, my whole, my entire being. There's not one compartment of my being that does not thirst for God. Every bit of me wants God, the psalmist says. All right, it can be easy for us, it can be easy for me to think, I'll, you know what, religion's just sort of interesting. It's fascinating. I come on a Sunday and I gain facts. I just like a little intellectual stimuli every now and then, and so church does that for me. You know, so with my intellect, I'm thirsting for God. We had a conversation with Jeremy Farmer when he was here, and he was just testifying of this sort of heartbeat working in him, a thirst for God, and and evidencing itself through a rekindled love for prayer in his personal life. And he said, sometimes I fear that even if I were a non-Christian, I would still like reading the Bible. Because he said, it's just a fascinating book. It's just interesting like any novel or any ancient text, right? That is not what the psalmist wants. He doesn't just want to learn new facts about God. His whole, he has not partitioned his self at all. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, in every sense, the psalmist hungers for the presence of God. Is that you this morning? Have you kind of quarantined God to a certain aspect of your life? He, he's only relevant for weekends, He's only relevant in this sort of building here with God's people. Or can you say that your whole being thirsts for God? This poor man, he knows that Israel's God is a living God, as you see there in verse 2. God is a living God, even though he will soon be surrounded with a myriad of adversaries berating him such a foolish belief, saying this repeated phrase, come on, where is your God? And so we read in verses 3 and 4, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So here he writes of the onslaught of derisive speech from his adversaries as they question at least the impotence of God, possibly even his very existence. You can almost hear their words in our own vernacular today, right? Look at you, you pathetic person. Really? You're crying all the time, talking about the good old days. Really? Look at your situation. You think God's anywhere to be found? He's packed his bags and left your party. He's nowhere near you. Come on, get over it. Where is your God if your life looks like that? We hear these taunts of the enemies just hitting him with one stone after another, creating doubt in his heart from time to time for sure. And verse 4, though, demonstrates, though, the life-giving remedy of remembering. Do you realize the gift of a memory to recall and to remember certain things? A lot of us tend to remember all the useless things of life. We tend, tend to remember just foolish things here and there, but the gift of a memory to recall those things that are of most importance, that's what he does here. And he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. His feelings overwhelm him as his entire being seems to be disintegrating into pieces. And even amidst the swirling accusations against his God, the psalmist remembers leading God's people in celebrative worship of Yahweh. Glad shouts and songs of praise create within him a fresh longing for home. Oh, to be with the children of God, joyously worshiping before the face of God. And this sweet yet bitter memory clings to him. We read in verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So here the self-examination begins. The honest introspection of what's going on inside starts. He speaks to his own soul, asking himself why he is so heartsick and why he's on the precipice of just utter despair. Why? His inward attitude and his feelings can only be described as turmoil. However, this is no morbid introspection that has no escape plan. No. Rather than continuing to listen to these tumultuous, despairing thoughts, the psalmist reroutes his mindset. And what he does here is sets his hope in something, namely God. Here is the personal relationship side of this phrase where we see my salvation, my God. He's not just declaring you are Israel's God to which I'm a part. You are my God. You're my God and you're my salvation. That's good if you come through for other people, God, and I delight in that, but, but what about my plight? What about my situation? You're just as much my God as you are Israel's God. 
Many have argued from the psalm over the past several decades that here lies a case study of someone who's in the throes of clinical depression. Almost bipolar in how quickly the psalmist switches from lament to hope. And, and you'll see this all the more in the next stanza. And I suppose that if you, you see this to be true, and you yourself maybe struggle with some form of mental illness, which is very, very common in our day and age, uh, then you would find yourself deeply encouraged in this passage. And so I would say be encouraged. Be encouraged in the Scriptures. Well, should you find yourself where depression and that sort of thing just hasn't really been a part of your life, don't assign this to some area of the Bible that, well, that's just a case study in depression. I, that, that doesn't fit me. No, it's supposed to fit you. Here is a suffering God-fearer, lover of God, and we're all supposed to be instructed. So on the whole, that debate, I'm not sure, matters all that much. Depression or not, bipolar characteristics or not, he's suffering, and he knows anguish. I believe one scholar on the book of Psalms, Derek Kidner, nails it when he writes this. This self-communing, right, this speaking to his own heart, this self-communing is the major refrain of these two psalms. It is an important dialogue between the two aspects of the believer. He is once a man of convictions and a character of change. He is called to live in eternity. His mind stayed on God, but also in time where mind and body are under pressures that cannot and should not leave him impassive. For did not even our Lord admit as much when he saw the prospect of his own death in John 12, 27, now is my soul troubled. The psalmist refrain teaches us to take seriously both aspects of a believer's existence. So can you relate to this kind of inner turmoil, this kind of emotional upheaval from time to time? Perhaps you've experienced times where you know the truth, but everything within and without, those voices outside of you, are just throwing those stones of doubt, wanting to say those thoughts. You are ridiculous. Get your act together. God's left your party. He's no longer near you. Where is your God? You start to listen to those voices and say, yeah, where is my God? Can you feel the angst, the visceral emotion that is just coming out of the heart of the psalmist? He thirsts for God more than anything. But that hasn't kept his soul from wrestling with his current situation. He pours out his heart while having, while having his theological anchor run deep. So the second stanza begins in verse 6 with a restatement of the question in verse 5. Do you see that? Look at your text there. In verse 5, we see a question. In verse 6, it's almost moved to just a matter of fact. Since I am cast down, since this is true, I'm no longer sort of questioning, is, is this really what I'm seeing, soul? No, it is true. I am cast down since this is a matter of fact. Once again, he remembers. He will once again remember God. And yet there is still a confusion over God's ways. So the psalmist questions God's ways. 
The location of the psalmist is here revealed because we're told in verse 6 that he is remembering God from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. So this seems to describe a location to the north outside of the land of Israel and likely near the source of the Jordan River. Okay, this location could be metaphorical for a place of just isolation outside of the land of God's people, or it could be an actual geographical place. Regardless, though, the understanding is, is very clear. This man is far from home. He's nowhere near home. He longs for the temple. He longs for his fellow countrymen and to rejoin his voices with theirs in corporate worship of God. Verse 7 reads here, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So here we're reminded of Genesis 1-2 where the same Hebrew word describes how darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The imagery here in verse 7 is one of a man who has just lost his footing. The waves are just too big. He can't stand up. They're breaking one after another over his head and he's realizing if something doesn't change soon, I'm done for. I am gone. He can no longer stand or even tread water. Certain death is upon him. In the ancient Near Eastern mindset that the psalmist is operating in, his worldview, if there was a place that represented closeness to God, nearness to God, it was generally going to be at the top of a mountain. I mean, if you think about it, God above, they think, what's the highest I can get to Him? Well, I'm going to go on the top of a mountain. You see God interacting with His children in significant ways and making covenants with them, typically on mountaintops. And so in their worldview, though, what would, what would be the opposite of nearness to God? Probably the depths of the sea, the very bottom of the sea. Some writers even call it Sheol. It has such a connotation to death. So we see this as depicted as the furthest place from God. The psalmist is saying, I might as well be right there in a watery grave. Perhaps you recall another troubled follower of God who wrote a poem himself to describe his personal story of being in the depths of the sea. Of course, I'm referring to Jonah. Just listen for a moment at the striking similarity to what Jonah pens while in the depths of the sea, to what the psalmist writes here. This is Jonah speaking in Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the, God, to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He is also enraptured with once again seeing the temple of God. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So the parallels here are almost too numerous to count. But like Psalm 42, we also see Jonah attributing these waves and these billows to whom? They are your waves. They are your billows. The sovereign hand of God is not distant from the causes of this suffering. It is nonetheless upheld by the sovereign hands of God. And both the psalmist and Jonah acknowledge that. We see him longing for God's presence in his holy temple. And like the psalmist, we see him remembering the Lord when his life is fading away. Finally, he acknowledges that salvation belongs entirely to the Lord. So back to Psalm 42. In the midst of the psalmist's lament, hope arises in verse 8. And in the midst of feeling like he's just on the brink of death, he declares, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So once more, we see this toggling back and forth between lament and and hope. Lament and hope. The psalmist lays hold of the covenant steadfast love of God. This is a firm foundation. This is something he can cling to. The living God from verse 2 is now the God of my life in verse 8. The breath of fresh air though that verse 8 provides quickly moves to a direct questioning of God. Verse 9 reads, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Even the respite that God's song in the night provides does not eliminate the suffering. It doesn't just instantly vanish once he gets his heart right. These are still real experiences for the one who feels he is drowning. And we must acknowledge that the psalmist is not asking a terrible question. This is a legitimate question. Why should evildoers continue to blaspheme the character of God? And why should God's covenant children not be allowed to worship before His face? Both of these are good things, right? So God, have you forgotten me? Where are you? Does this ever sound like your life? Do you ever have that Godward posture in your lament, in your cries? Perhaps you might say, God, where are you? I know you you say you'll never leave me or forsake me, but I just feel abandoned in the midst of this hostile relationship or this toxic relationship that I have to interact with. Why won't you just remove them from my life and end my suffering? Or, God, are you even involved in my life? I'm really struggling over here, and and, and you won't zap this temptation that's so prevalent in my life. I just want to walk with you, so please remove the battle. Is that such a bad thing? Have you forgotten me? Or, God, did you forget me? I thought you were going to use me in this particular ministry to advance your kingdom in this particular way. And yet I I feel like I'm on the bench getting no playing time. I, I lack any opportunity. Have you forgotten me? What's your plan? These questions, like the psalmist, if offered, 
with that Godward posture of sincere repentance and genuine plea to Him have their place in a believer's life. We realize that. There's almost a lost art to a lament. We know how to whine. We're pretty good at that. But true lament, sometimes we just chalk it up to God's sovereignty and then we just don't talk to Him about it. We just clench our teeth and think that's the end of that. He'll, he'll work it out. As if this karma idea that just, you know, I'm going to keep my nose clean and things will work out. But do we really pour our hearts out like this to the psalmist? Verse 10 continues, As with deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These are no average wounds we're looking at here, such that he can shake them off after a day or two. These are bone deep. Whereas verse 9 mentioned a singular enemy, verse 10 mentions plural adversaries. Will these continuous waves of oppression ever cease, God? As British theologian Dick Lucas writes, these adversaries view God as either impotent or indifferent. He either lacks the power to do anything about the situation, or he quite honestly could care less about this poor soul in the midst of his suffering. Is this not still the accusations we often hear today? Well, where was God when 9-11 happened? Where was God when Hurricane Katrina took out all of New Orleans? Where was God when my father passed away? Or my friend died in a plane crash? Where was God in this scenario? Should a child ever have to see his brother suffer with cancer? Where's God? The pain is always real. It's always real. The feelings of abandonment, they're always real. We can't just say, don't feel like that. You know, take a walk in a park, you'll feel better. They're real. This is real stuff. Those feelings of, I think I'm going to be crushed under this next wave that hits me. These kinds of fears are real. You know them, don't you? But even when God is silent like He is in these two psalms, do you see God speaking? No. He's silent. Even when He's silent, He is there. And He is always working. Finally, the psalm concludes with a restatement of verse 5. The same verse that concluded the first stanza. And we see this recapitulation at the end, this parallelism. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So I ask you this morning, do you have a genuine thirst for God? Do you thirst for Him? Not just for the niceness that He brings occasionally to your life or for His added bonus blessings. The friend that you know whose life went better when they became a Christian and so you kind of want those better stuff. No. Do you thirst your whole being? Thirst for God. Imagine for a moment that when God created our bodies, He simply left out the thirst mechanism. What if we never felt thirsty? I mean, some of us struggle to stay hydrated as it is, and we don't drink enough water on a regular basis, but imagine if you never had uh, your mouth get dry 
or you ever felt thirsty, you thought, I need to drink something. What if God just left that chip out? We'd be in rough shape, right? What a gift even that thirst mechanism is for us. So should you find yourself this morning and you look at the character of God, you look at the promises of God, and perhaps you're outside of the the Christian community and you look in and you think, I'm kind of thirsty for that. I want Him. That is a gift from our sovereign God. That is a gift to your soul. And that thirst mechanism isn't supposed to leave you without doing anything about it. God is drawing your soul, perhaps by His grace. When Jesus kindly interacted with a very sinful, immoral person, a Samaritan woman, who was doing a fairly routine thing in John chapter 4, she was at a well getting water. Jesus offered her the only kind of water that could really quench her thirst forever. He offered her living water. Of course, she was confused and she didn't understand exactly what he's talking about, but we understand it was a metaphor for himself. He was saying, should you drink of the water that I offer, you'll know what it means to be satiated and have your thirst quenched. So she tries to circumvent his intrusive, heart-probing questions, right? She tries to change the topic and get away from where he's pressing in on her personal life. What she doesn't realize, that her past and her current love affair with sin is actually the cancer that only Jesus can do something about. And the same is true for you. Your sin can only be dealt with by Jesus Christ. The way that He can quench your thirsty soul is unparalleled. And there is nothing in this world that can even get close. You've got to believe that. That is the story of the Bible. God is your only remedy in Christ. Will you thirst for God's presence in Christ? Let me ask you, Have you turned towards other alternatives besides Jesus that you thirst after? When it comes to trials and suffering, are you the type of person that tries to ignore the pain, you know, do the clenched teeth approach and just gut it out until the storm passes? Is that you? Maybe that works for some of you with a fairly high tolerance of pain. But for a lot of us, don't we try to go the numbing route? We just try to look to other stuff to just take it away. Oftentimes, we'll look to drugs, prescription drugs, alcohol, overeating, frivolous spending on toys, pornography, grumbling, complaining, gossip, anything to either deny the trial's unwelcome presence in our life or to at least shift the pain away. Get it on someone else. I'm tired of this spotlight. God wants us to face Him in our pain. To face Him. Let your theological anchor run deep, but have the courage to pour your heart out to Him. Look into His face. He understands your pain. How does He understand your pain? Because He Himself suffered worst of all. As one man writes, theologian John Stott, he puts it this way, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? Pain is endurable, but the seeming indifference of God is not. 
Sometimes we picture God lounging, perhaps even dozing, in a celestial deck chair while the millions starve to death. We think of Him as an armchair spectator almost gloating over the world's suffering and enjoying His own insulation from it. Even Job declared something similar, that God mocks the despair of the innocent. But it is this terrible caricature of God that the cross smashes to smithereens. We are not to envisage Him on a deck chair, but on a cross. The God who allows us to suffer once suffered Himself in Christ and continues to suffer with us and for us today. Isn't God's presence to us astounding? John 1.14 states, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus expressed God's localized glory in the temple through His tabernacling with us in human flesh. Although the religious life of the psalmist under the Old Covenant differed sharply, very much so from our externals today, his hunger for God is no different from ours. We should interpret that as our hunger for the living Christ. Even more astounding is how the New Testament refers to the church as the very household of God, a holy temple in the Lord, as Paul writes to the Ephesians. And since this is true, and since the church is the bride of our Lord and the very object of His passion, can we rightly say we're seeking God's presence when we run from God's own household, His people, His holy temple? I think not. I share this with you to say that when life mows you down, and when life cripples you, so that you feel just spiritually tanked, would you not only run to the Word of God, run to the God of the Scriptures, but run to the people of God, the church of Christ? And lastly, will you remember God? Will you preach truth to your soul, as is so wonderfully modeled for us in this text? Will you preach to your soul? It's an obvious thing, right, that nobody can influence the way that you think more than you can because you talk to yourself more than anyone else, right? You can influence the way you think because you're just the most consistent stream of input. So what does the psalmist do here? He recognizes what's going on. He doesn't try to just clench his teeth and say, it's not happening. This is not happening again. I'm not going to think about it. He recognizes it. I am downcast. I'm coming apart. And he says, and because of that, I'm going straight to, to my heart's pulpit. I'm going to preach truth into my heart because I need it. It's my lifeline. It's my everything. When these waves and billows roll after you one after another, will you remember God? Will you hope in Him? The psalm ends with no real change. In Psalm 43, the psalmist has not been triumphantly restored back to his homeland. 
His enemies haven't been knocked over the head and triumphed over. Nothing's different. But the psalmist's heart is clinging to what it needs to cling to, the promise of God. So maybe the waves aren't going to go down anytime soon in your life. So what direction are you going to face in your suffering? Are you facing Godward with genuine lament, rightly asking God why, but with a confidence in His character? Or are you facing inward and toward the world's voices such that you're losing confidence in Him? Brothers and sisters, let's thirst for God. Would we be an assembly that thirsts for Him with our whole beings? Not that we're just an intellectually savvy church, but that in every component of our lives, we hunger for God because we know we need Him. And when the hard times come, we remember Him. We don't run to all the wrong places. We remember our God. And finally, we know how to hope in this kind of God because He's there. Will you consider these things as we pray together? God, You are our salvation and You are our God. Help us to personalize these things. We all will know suffering at one point. That is what it means to live a Christian life. Your Word tells us this. And yet, God, we shouldn't be surprised when troubles come, when sorrows come in our lives. We know that is what it means to cling to You. And ironically, it is in the absence that we feel of Your presence that we find a greater impetus to know Your presence. That's amazing. So God, help us to remember. Help us to hope in You. We ask this for Your glory. Amen. Please stand with me. And for a few moments in silence, let's examine our hearts. Confess, repent. Repent.